I came back uh, to my flat today to find a, a friend of mine was just sort of standing there. He's very, very excited uh, because he has an idea to make what he thinks is going to be 60000 or so dollars with minimal investment over the next year, taking advantage of an apparent price arbitrage between French bulldogs uh, in the United Kingdom and Canada uh, because he saw one advertised on Gumtree for 500 pounds and a friend of his who breeds them on a farm in New Zealand can sell them for $5,000 each. And so I asked him, what are you going to do with this? And he says, well, I'm going to buy it, say it's my pet, fly back to Vancouver, and my parents have just cleaned out the garage, so I assume they'll be okay dealing with this. So I'm wondering, is there something wrong with this dog that he's purchasing, though? Think about that. It's like, (laughs) is he not getting a great deal because this dog is massively defective? Is he about to become the owner of like the lineage of bad, badly bred bulldogs? Like the omen to, dog. Is he about to buy a Habsburg French bulldog? Absolutely. <laughs> is he an Austrian bulldog? <laughs> and, and so I, I, I was like, do is is there, are there any licenses involved in doing this? And he is like, I'm, I have no idea. All I know is that you pay about two two thousand dollars for one to come stud for you, and then you know you they can't give birth naturally, so you need to give him a C section. Um, and then he Which just, I'll just do in my uh, garage because I'm, I'm a normal person. Yeah. I've got a garage. That's most of what you need. It sounds expensive. I mean, I mean, I think. So what's he going to do with the dog? Why is he going to sell it in New Zealand? Well, he's going to sell it in Canada based on New Zealand prices. Really? As one does. I think he needs to do a little bit more research here. Yeah. Yeah. Like, find out the Canadian prices. It might be $500 for a dog over there. Yeah, he might, he might yeah. end up basically just losing money on a cockamamie scheme. He's to actually do a cl- just not done enough research on Canada and he thinks New Zealand is part of Canada. That's the- <laughs> No, no. It's that he essentially is going to spend uh, thousands of pounds on a cockamamie scheme to start a clandestine dog breeding ring out of his parents' garage while living here. But he will become yeah. an expert on dog handling fees across international flights for the entirety of the Commonwealth because... And that's... The thing is you've got to spend money to make money, right? <laughs> okay? Also, an expert on C-sections? Did I catch that right? You've got it for a French Bull, bulldog to give birth it has to be got via big heads maybe yeah c-section yeah wow yeah. but he, he's, he's sure that they're gonna sell for five thousand dollars each and he's gonna get seven dogs per but i mean haven't you ever been to vancouver people are just offering dog c-sections everywhere you go on the street like, <laughs> <laughs> you want a bulldog hey come here i got you i got a scalpel they talk with brooklyn <laughs> Wait, so, accents sorry, somehow the vancouver yeah. the brooklyn italian american bit of vancouver where they do hey dog c-sections just they, like my mama mia used to do in the old country when they banned the dog trade in brooklyn they had to move somewhere they went to vancouver <laughs> when they banned the dog trade in brooklyn everybody okay. started getting whacked <laughs> tony i'm gonna give you a taste of this action on the dog c-sections all right we've been running this thing with these guys out of out of dover okay <laughs> <laughs> anyway i so by the logic of late stage capitalism he's gonna be a billionaire in a couple of months build an app oh yeah you, need an, there. you need an app Hello again. Once again, I'm never going to do the intro right, I think. I think that's part of the show now. Well, right? welcome, welcome to the podcast about how the future is trash unless no, we, we institute we don't, no, we don't fully, say lo- it. fully automated luxury gay space communism. We haven't said, that's what we said, right? Well, uh, that's what I've not been saying for the last oh, year because I'm tired of saying it right. I never <laughs> once said it right. It. 
I yeah. never once said the intro to our own show correctly. But that's we now make money from. That being uh. said, we uh, we are here tonight to record a show with uh, two special guests. We have uh, Riley. If you want to introduce them? Oh yeah, dude. Do, do you mind? I'm the host now. Apparently, do, do you do you mind if I do the thing that I do every episode? Yes. Yeah, so uh, we have we have our special guests here tonight. Uh, we have Alice Capranos from Franz Ferdinand, and Hello. as well. Bob Hardy from Transferred. Hello. Hey. What Thanks a coincidence. <laughs> Thanks for being Why here, gentlemen. <laughs> we just took off their blindfolds and now they've realized that they're here together. <laughs> Whitechapel. Yeah. Hey, everyone. I guess I'm not I guess I'm not the main guy anymore. People, no. I actually know who they are on our podcast tour. <laughs> You've been amazing. usurped, Riley. It doesn't matter anymore. Okay. Do you do you want to do all, all the research and reading all like the leftist essays on shit and understand what like the correct takes are? I'm just gonna get on Gumtree and find someone to do that while I'm arbitraging dog prices. <laughs> Yo, I'm just, I'm, just gonna, I'm just gonna hire a dog to do it. <laughs> yeah. French Bulldogs are actually good at that shit. Really bad at giving birth, but excellent at reading up on leftist doctrine. <laughs> Uh, so we got we got some good we got some good shit for you today. Um, we've got some we've got some some of our normal our normal sort of you know piddling crap that we're going to talk through as we usually do um, about how you know basically most major industries are more or less bad, and then we're going to sort of go a little bit more into the ways in which the music industry has been let's say changed uh, by the. Not just by the advent of streaming, but by I guess the way it sort of has sort of emphasized some of the shit about it that was already bad and invented new bad stuff for us all to enjoy, more or less. But if you've got a free and open garage, you don't need to be making music. You can be making money from dog cesarean sections. <laughs> Look, here's the thing: when there's a massive arbitrage available in French bulldog prices across uh, di- national borders, the fools go into the French bulldog business. The wise men go into the dog C-section business. Mm. So that being said, Riley, you have some interesting information oh, about our favorite, our favorite billionaire stuff. villain. No, no, this is our second or third. Favorite. Oh, well, there's a different billionaire villain. We two, talk about first. two billionaire villains. Two billionaire villains in this one. It's hard to keep um, track, to be honest. This is um, we've been we've been bringing back some old 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 standby segments uh, a, a little bit. We've done a couple of products in the last few weeks. This is a Silicon Valley reinvented something section. Because this is the most ideologically loaded Silicon Valley reinvented something section I think we've ever done in the past ever. The stakes are high. Um, Eric Schmidt has a new startup plan called the One Billion Wage Gain Challenge. Now, I'm going to read this short section and then... It sounds um, gym related. uh (laughs) 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 And, And then... Uh, because this is a very, very regular podcast that's sort of very just sort of down the middle and makes a lot of sense, my co-hosts and the main elements of the band Franz Ferdinand are going to guess more or less what it is that they're doing. Um, our goal, writes Schmitz, well, or Schmitz publicist, to be fair, none of these ghouls probably even remember how to write. Uh, our goal is to help fuel a movement that results in meaningful wage gains for workers across the country. Much like the concept of a $1 billion unicorn startup in Silicon Valley, this is a $1 billion unicorn to grow the middle class. We'll source new existing ideas, highlight promising examples, we'll encourage the workforce to field, um, sorry, excuse me, we'll encourage the workforce to explore innovative approaches and call in players from other fields to address this challenge. What have they invented? Rather, you, what is this context inventing? Context they've inventing? misspelled the word union as unicorn. <laughs> Out the gate. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> It's true. Yeah, I was reading about this earlier. Like they're, they're talking about um, 
increasing uh, wages for low and middle income workers by ten thousand dollars a year. And this guy, what's he? What's he worth? Like fifteen billion or something yeah, like some, that? Some 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 nonsense amount. Ten thousand dollars a year is absolutely nothing to him. And he's basically describing the concept of a union. Yeah. And those big tech organizations have done everything that they can over the years to suppress worker representation. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing is a little bit perverse from my yeah. perspective. Anyway. I, what is the unicorn? Is that an accepted term in Silicon Valley? What, is, what, is yeah, what does that mean? mean? I, 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 I yeah. don't know. That. I've, I've you heard often it hear around, people like Mark Zuckerberg described as unicorns because apparently they just have this singular ability to generate profit. It's I don't magical. Know what, and a massive it's, horn on their head. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that they... Hunted for, for, for their, this, the sexual prowess that their bones provide, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It's... it's it's yeah, it's because it's it's the belief. It's I think it's it's innocent. It is a fundamentally sort of liberal belief that sort of the people who are the tech billionaires are sort of magically special and intelligent. And so arrogant. I think we need to hold it a little closer, though. So that's yeah. so arrogant. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the, this idea that sort of it's well, we 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 need more Schmitz, we need more Zuckerbergs, we need more Elon Musks, which we'll get more to. More of your friend with the dogs. <laughs> we need more of my friend with the dogs in order to grow to order to grow our economy and get out of this slump and really bring prosperity to everyone. I mean but I mean I don't sound like a broken record, but like the idea that there's a slump if there's a wage growth slump, it's because there's too many people like Eric Schmidt with billions of dollars on hand and not enough people who can spend money on things they need because yeah. their wages haven't grown in ten years or twenty years. That's exactly it. I mean, the thing I'd say too is just like, you have that here in the UK, you have it in the US, and it's just sort of like, what is it about Google that apparently, even though they, they claim to hire the smartest people, they can't seem to figure out the idea of like, well, maybe, I don't know, you, you shouldn't find ways to exclude your workers from benefits. You shouldn't, you know, have half your workforce that isn't tech, tech people be contractors who get nothing. You know, you shouldn't contribute to these things that basically like, you know, make sure that housing is so expensive that people literally have no disposable income. But like, Apparently, no, you need a unicorn to solve the problem. Yeah. The problem with Google is they lack the fundamental resources to come up with great ideas. And the most fundamental resource of all that they lack is garage space. <laughs> <laughs> the more of that you have, the better the ideas you come up well, with. It's, look, it's like... <laughs> it's like and, and, and how are, how are unicorns born? Is that via C-section as well? <laughs> Presumably. I, I presume it must be like with that horn. Ow, it's going to yeah. cause a lot of damage <laughs> on the way out. Yeah. And those guys double team it. The guys doing the French bulldogs, they do unicorns as well. <laughs> Eric Schmidt has put money on it. I mean, he's ready yeah. to help. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but I don't think Ask Jeeves got a lot of lunch breaks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. But it's the thing is they, they've 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 basically seen um, this as a kind of they've seen this sort of the problem of low productivity and low wage growth as a sort of technical problem that with 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 the, with the application of just enough cleverness, enough smarts, we'll be able to sort of overcome it and then. Everyone can benefit together. Isn't it pretty simple? You just pay people more. Well, I don't know. That's pretty radical there, Bob Hardy. I'm not sure. Come on. <laughs> you can't you can make that an app. Hold your horses with those crazy ideas. <laughs> yeah. I don't, yeah. That's the thing. Anytime that, that the labor market has been disrupted by tech, think about what it's done. It's created Amazon fulfillment centers. It's created sort of precarized Uber drivers and delivery riders. It's it's sort of it's it's fivered jobs where sort of once you could be a copywriter now you're someone selling sort of fifteen minutes a time of copywriting on Fiverr like like all all the every every time it disrupts it disrupts in favor of capital. 
Do you know what gives me like a really uneasy feeling when I hear about this story? It's it's the way it's presented by him and his group of unicorns or whatever they are, as if it's a new situation and as if it's a new problem that they need to find a new solution to. But it's not. It's it's the age-old problem, which is people who are in a, a position of power abuse that power and uh, take advantage of, of of people who don't have power, and and yeah, they have no representation. That's the heart of the problem. I'm not- I can't remember. I'm a bit behind with the various tech companies, but what's Google's tax uh, status at the moment? Are they registering they love Luxembourg? I'm sure they have a headquarters or... in Ireland and they're sitting yeah, yeah. on a comically large pile of cash that just yeah, it's you like, know, have to yeah. put in warehouses. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's look, it's, it's identity politics for billionaire douchebags. Well, one thing I point out too is, that, I mean, there was a guy, I can't remember his name, and, uh, but he was one of the co-founders of Amazon and I think he's cashed out at one of these points. He's not like Jeff Bezos. He's not still involved. But he's a billionaire, and he made the point that he's like, I like to think of myself as a decently, you know, modest person, but I'll probably buy three or four pairs of, of, of trousers per year. However, I am not going to buy 30,000 pairs of trousers per year that workers would buy if they had money to buy them. It's like, there's no way that someone like me with billions of dollars is going to mm-hmm. be able to, you know, serve as the equivalent of workers with disposable income. And yeah. so, like, the solution is right there in their hands, it's just, but it just, it doesn't... It doesn't ring true yes, to people who because they're not going to spend the money they have because they keep it in the bank to make more money. That's what yeah. you know, the comedian Kevin Bridges. His, that was his idea was to um, to kickstart the economy, just make the dole like a thousand pounds a week because people will spend it. You know, yeah, that's UBI. Silly, straight oh, yeah. into the economy. You know, you know the only way we're going to convince someone like like because there's a certain kind of dunderheaded like uh, Tory MP um, that's very easily swayed by like an app. Uh, I mean, like Liz Truss or Matt Hancock or whatever. <laughs> Like just real pinheads. Apparently, they love such one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. And 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 this trust would love the French bulldog thing. She'd be like, (laughs) "This man is an entrepreneur. He's pioneering. He's in Beijing selling dogs for meat." Okay. So what I'm saying, what I'm saying, what I'm, I mean, she wants to strike trade deals. What I'm saying is, um, what we need to do is, as I think, the real solution to this is just okay. The, the app is called U-N-I-N. <laughs> Onion? <laughs> United Nations. It's nations. Yeah. And, 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 and basically what it does is it allows workers uh, to swipe right on whether or not they'll want to um, uh, continue working that day, but it allows them to do it together on the basis of aggregating all the right swipes and there's a vote. That's and a great idea. Yeah. And so, and then, you know, they can, they can message each other on uh, S-T-R-I-K-R, uh, and then, yeah, exactly. And, and then, then they, maybe they'll be able to sort of collectively bargain, take all the vowels out of it, we'll call it an app, and then, then maybe that they can finally get enough money to buy all those pants or buy stupid friends French bulldog idea. Yeah, and also what you could have the app feeding uh, like some kind of news feed, so as the workers get... The, the vote gets towards towards striking. It affects the stock price, and the stock price starts going down. So then, you know, it actually affects the people who own the company, and then they have to like, listen to the workers. What's Amazing. really mm. astonishing is that they actually first created this app 
in like mills in the 18th century. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even need computers. In physical form, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they downloaded that it was, on That was the analog form of the app. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's, a great, it's the first app that was built yeah. on a punch card. This obvious solution to a glaring political non-technical problem. Right, yeah, these <laughs> problems are they, they were solved ages ago, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've solved them. It's just, you know, Thatcher but, unsolved but, but, but come them. come now, Riley, I have been told that the unions were the cause of all the problems in the 70s and we had to get rid of them because that solved it. And now, Wage growth is stagnant, and literally the only country in the European Union with worse wage growth in the United Kingdom is Greece. Uh, also, a famous success story of neoliberal economics. Oh so, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. You see, actually, you think that we need to stop doing neoliberal economics, but I, much like the Tory Party um, and Sam Gima, my response is, what if we didn't? Well, mm, then, but what uh, if? <laughs> then we could then we could just turn to our heroes like Eric Schmidt or Elon Musk to solve our problems for us. Are you are you segueing? I might be segueing. You, you never know. Wait, so hang on, before we do, I've actually I've actually got an idea. So I've recently come into an empty garage. Okay. <laughs> now, wait. Did you also come into the French bulldog inside it? Because that might be a problem. I did not do that. <laughs> Jesus uh, Christ! Jesus Christ. Oh wow! That you've kind of you've 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 pushed me aside there. That's <laughs> oh. I, was, I had to think about that for a second. And what does the world need? woven fabrics. Now, I've invented a kind of a kind of weaving machine. I'm not sure what I'm going to call it yet, and it's powered by is this amazing thing where if you boil water, it creates a kind of vapor, <laughs> and you can use it to drive turbines and move and then what I'm going to do is get small boys to climb into it and remove the broken parts from the machine. It's going to be very dangerous, but it's going to revolutionize the economy. So, I mean, you you spinning journey. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what you've essentially invented is a very young apprenticeship program that's going to get kids the skills they need. To succeed in tomorrow's economy. Exactly. So just replacing well, I mean, loom parts. With that in mind, let's talk about the incredible efficiency of the economy, which was apparently moved by an order of magnitude on the basis of a weed joke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Elon Musk, uh, we're going to have to cast our minds, our minds back uh, into hallowed antiquity uh, for this to work right now. Remember um, early August... I know that might be difficult because it probably feels like a 20 fucking years ago. More distant <laughs> than the fall of Rome at this point. Yes. Yeah. Because everything just, there's, there's a lot happening very frequently. And so early August is another world for me. But Elon Musk tweeted, and I remember because I was actually on the train to Edinburgh writing an article for The Independent about how he's a very specific kind of dumb guy. Um, he went and did something very smart, didn't he? Yes. He tweeted, I am taking Tesla private at $420 a share, funding secured. We all remember this, correct? Right. Yes, sir. Yeah, we all, we all remember, we remember this, this great little use of online. Now, most people thought this was just Elon Musk being his usual um, dumbass, epic bacon self, being like, ha ha, weed joke. Um, but oh, it, it, it so much more spun off of it because... Um, Tesla short sellers lost more than $800 million after uh, Musk tweeted this, and he earned more than $851 million immediately after tweeting this admittedly cryptic weird sentence. It also bears mention, I think, that Tesla is one of those companies that uh, people should be selling short because like, invariably they're not going to meet their goals. But yep. there's this cult of personality surrounding Elon Musk that seems to drive its price up if you care about stock prices. And as such, like there are people constantly betting against it. And the fact that anyone might dare bet against Elon Musk's baby drives him bananas. And so like the opportunity, even if it ultimately ends up causing bigger problems for him down the road, Which the, we'll ability, get into. the ability to shame anyone who dares bet against his baby 
is such a powerful force for him that, of course, he has to yeah. do the thing that he did. I'm just yeah. fantasizing about the idea of Elon Musk having a baby that's involved in some kind of like baby boxing ring, and I can bet against him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, mean, I don't Musk. know what goes down in South Africa, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet against that being true. <laughs> no, so essentially, the twist in this story, of course, comes when uh, Stephen Pikin, uh, co-director of enforcement for the SEC. A guy who was presumably born in a in a blue suit and like with a four hundred one k could have been a gray suit. Um, let's be fair. Said in a news conference, we allege that Musk arrived at the price of four hundred and twenty dollars by assuming a twenty percent premium of what Tesla's then existing share price was, then rounding up to four twenty because of the significance of that number in marijuana culture and his belief that his girlfriend would be amused by it. <laughs> I for that I I don't I think that's funny. Yeah, I, I think I like someone seeing a joke through, like a weak joke, but making it, it as all far the way. as possible. Yeah, to the, and taking it, and, a weak joke to the point of financial fraud. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, a weak joke to making nearly a billion dollars. Uh, you know, yeah, accidentally. Little, yeah, I've never made that much money off a joke. I'm going to put it out there. He's a better comedian than me by that metric. <laughs> oh my, I mean, that's the thing. if you're going to go with the sort of irrational cons- neoliberal consistency of measuring everything by its dollar value. Then yes, Elon Musk is a better comedian than you. He's the world's best comedian. Actually, he might be, yeah. I mean, how long did it take? I mean, yeah, absolutely. That's which, a lot of money for one joke. <laughs> which should go to show that neoliberalism is pretty fucking stupid. Well, I mean, I definitely look at that and I see efficiency when I think yeah. about like a weird joke that costs nearly a billion dollars. Yeah. You got to, all, jo- all jokes should be judged by the bottom line, surely, right? Yeah. 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 Well, I, well, Same I way think, music. Well, I think- <laughs> 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 what I love there That's is like can- the stuff. The subtle shade of the guy saying, in the belief that his girlfriend would find it amusing. And like the implication is like not only is he getting absolutely owned for financial fraud here, but that his girlfriend wasn't even amused oh, by it. Like oh, the no. SEC investigated and said, like, no, she was not significantly <laughs> amused. Elon, Elon Musk has ended up being fined twenty million dollars, which it's not much for a billionaire, but it's not nothing. Um, over basically doing something that amounts to like a horny dad trying to make a joke to hit on his daughter's friend. Well, I mean, I guess the thing with Elon Musk is just that you see this take place and you're like, here's someone for whom the internet was a mistake. Like, he <laughs> might have just been able to sell his electric cars and make money and do whatever had he not gotten so hung up in this idea of sort of like, Everything has to be an internet joke. And it's sad because, I mean, you may have heard the story about like the, the Tesla models, literally the Model S, the Model 3, the Model X, the Model Y spelling out sexy because he thinks that's funny. He's a fucking idiot, but he thinks it's funny. And once again, it's like if you could just have gone back to 2004 and cut off the internet for him, he might be a norm- it might be a normal yeah. company now. N- next year's line of testers are actually going to spell out boobies if you hold them upside down. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love as well how like... Um, as part of the settlement, he he might not only have to pay the twenty million dollars, but he might also have to have all of his public announcements supervised. Is that right? Like, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know what that means. Like like who is going to be the supervising? But I love the idea that people who have who are in the public eye and who are figures of great influence might need to be supervised if yeah. they are if they're well, somehow that, that considered to be like dangerous in yeah. their their tweeting pre-twitter that would have been normal you know well, you, yeah, you of course, but like, I mean, can you think of any other figures in the public eye who would be great if they were supervised or? Mm, god no nothing coming to mind yeah. Yeah. no one what do you think? Think? Yeah, yeah, maybe, no, maybe. Yeah. 
No, um, um, no one ever. Really, like, with a nuclear button. Bottle um, of wine. I want to get work. involved yeah. in some interband conflict here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Was that why you talked about Alex's Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not since you stopped drinking. No, it's no. fine. Like, yeah. are, you, are you familiar with the Elon Musk origin story, which is apparently nonsense, but I love it. I wish it was real. He came from the planet Krypton. <laughs> no, it's where he got his first bit of cash because he was running a website in the 90s, which was a corn fan site. And he developed a um, mathematical proof that the bass player's bass lines were, was the 90%, 99% probability they were ripped off the incidental music on Seinfeld. And, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so Korn, the Korn's management paid him $2 million to delete the article and he'll never, have never mentioned again. Holy shit. So but what, I don't think it's true. That's great. That's great anyway. But what's especially great about that is you don't know how much that plays into the mythology of this entire podcast. <laughs> yeah. Because we regularly reference both corn and Seinfeld. Oh, really? <laughs> no. I, I also it also really releases well. I love the idea that a band would have two million dollars to like yeah, pay yeah, off yeah. some guy well, I mean, for I mean, in the 90s you probably yeah. did because of CD sales I mean yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I mean every <laughs> yeah. I mean I, I can't say I know I, I know a lot of Freak on a Leash that's a corn song yeah Freak on a Leash was very popular because I know I have a slap yeah. funky bass line uh, you know, they didn't want any further investigation into the fact that Freak yeah I mean my favorite parts of Seinfeld were where George would say something like I don't know I just don't like that kind of woman, Jerry. And then Corn would come in. And <laughs> <laughs> just play Got the Life and Crash Ferraris on stage. The reason why they paid him off was they didn't want him to make any further analysis into the fact that Freak on a Leash was in fact a song about all the money they'd illegally made from breeding French bulldogs in Canada. Oh. <laughs> Um, that's not a French bulldog that's a French Canadian bulldog (laughs) it's eating chips and gravy for Christ's sake the the deal's gone south everyone's pulled a gun on each other (laughs) it's like that it's like the part of the movie Heat where it just gets fucked up Mm. Um, but no what this what I think this tells us right is that again this much like the Eric Schmidt thing the idea that all of these unicorn billionaires are especially clever, especially intelligent, and are going to be the people who save our civilization is a complete fucking sham. Because how are we on earth are we going to believe that this shameless idiot, who's no longer even allowed to control his own Twitter, um, but is somehow still allowed to control one of the vastest hordes of resources in human history, is somehow going to save the world or make us a multiplanetary species or even end our dependence on fossil fuels when he's more likely to fly a group of colonists to Mars and when they unfreeze and open their preserved preserve food stores, it just plays a Rickroll video, right? Like, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, it's utter garbage. Do you, do you think something's happened in his personal life in the last like, year or so? Because more and more, it just seems like he's <laughs> tweeting these mad things. Like that submarine thing with the kids in Indonesia who were trapped. Oh, yeah, we oh, cool. so so yeah, yeah, yeah. What's yeah, going on here? I'm a bit worried the, for him. Where he invited Azalea Banks over to it, or Grimes, yeah. Grimes invited Azalea Banks over. She was tweeting, over. saying that what they, yeah. Trying to do some weird threesome shit and just cracked yeah. on also acid the whole time. Apparently that the whole 420 price target thing was like a thing he cooked up well on acid, like... It basically didn't strike you as what a billionaire CEO who's trying to yeah. invent a space rocket is going to be doing on but a free time. But it fits yeah. in with all my theories about like entrepreneurs in general. It seems like such a dumb thing to do. And that's my theory about entre- entrepreneurs in general, that they're just really dumb and super cocky. And they see uh, that's, that's how they do things. Like, like, yeah. They're so cocky. They think they're amazing. They think they're so amazing. They call themselves bloody unicorns, whatever the hell that means. And, like, yeah. and, and they do. Like, if, and... I know I, my, my, my sister used to go out with a guy who uh, was a trader. Like he used to sell oil 
And mm. he was a bit of a. I mean, I'm, he might be listening to this. I don't know. But anyway, anyway Ross, like, like, I'm sure you no won't be offended. To this, Alex. You're a bit of a daft guy. But like, 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 and, and he used to do well when he would just make cocky, stupid decisions. And that seems to be the way that entrepreneurs succeed. Well, it's just, yeah, exactly. It's a lot it's, of self-belief. It's, it's just self-belief. Yeah. And, and also taking, I don't know if you guys ever play chess, but like sometimes like if you play chess against somebody who is, you know, complete, uh, doesn't have much experience, but if they do like really mad, unpredictable moves, they can completely destroy you. Same in, same in poker or something like that, because they're behaving, you know, like, like in a way that you yeah. can't, you can't predict. predict. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I think some of the most successful entrepreneurs are like that. I think that's probably the best business conclusion that's ever been come to on this <laughs> podcast. Yeah. That's definitely super true about poker. Like, I've definitely played poker with people who are so bad at poker that they're bluffing and they don't know they're bluffing. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, that yeah, is yeah. like the most powerful position <laughs> yeah. ever. That is basically yeah. Donald Trump's president. Yeah. Yeah. That is true, isn't it? Yeah, he's yeah, bluffing yeah. and he doesn't know he's bluffing, right? Yeah. 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 It's just all, all, all of these idiots just stumble dick first into enormous power. And they're like, what what have they all got in common? They're white men. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) Wait a minute. I'm going to look around. (laughs) Hang on. (laughs) Where's my billion? (laughs) I was going to say, Riley, I mean, the idea of cocky and not knowing where you are is like, wait a minute. Are you an entrepreneur? (laughs) You just might be an entrepreneur. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a little bit of the blue collar comedy to her. Here's your entrepreneur sign. Uh, it's union. <laughs> Here's your desk black. Right. Um. So I think that's uh, that's 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 Elon. He's paying a lot of money. He's has to stop posting. But, but what, uh, what I find perverse is well, when you're telling that story, it's like he's got to pay a fine of twenty million dollars, right? Yeah. How much did he make from the the four twenty yeah. tweet? Far more that's than right. that, apparently. <laughs> that's a rounding error. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh my god. That that's that's crazy. Like like you know he's. Yeah, that, that's a that's a pretty good profit margin. I'm not very good at business, but I can tell that's a good profit margin. I wish like every time I did a dumb tweet, I made that much money. Like you know, you know like, the tweets you're ashamed of that got like three likes and zero retweets, and then you just like, but I have made like eight hundred and forty million dollars. So <laughs> I did such a bad day. I did tweet I shitted on my doo doo ass, but I do now own a house. So oh, yeah. you know, swings and roundabouts. <laughs> The, the, that is that is the update from our our big beautiful dumb wet raw water enema boys in uh, Silicon Valley, Valley. Yeah. inventor of the electric samurai sword. But we also <laughs> want to talk about Silicon Valley in a different sense, in the, in a way that uh, a particular startup, but a number of startups in general, have affected the music industry. And if I am segueing, hopefully not yes. too early, you're, Riley. You've been you've been rocking the segues. I'm the segue man. Why I just, are you playing the segue man? Just do what I gotta you, do. Are here. you? Do, are you? Dude, are you disrupting? I am. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a tech disruptor. I'm trying to put you off your game. Are you disrupting game. my rhythm? But Nate uh, is simply following the official NATO Segway process. I have a YouTube video. You have to pay for subscribing <laughs> to it. Um, so, now, one thing. Now, you guys, you guys, you guys have played a couple of songs in your time. Uh, sure. The, yeah, you know, a couple, <laughs> couple, couple, couple of one, two. Here or know? there. Yeah, yeah. So, hmm. obviously, we're here to talk about the darts of pleasure. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, going right back. You guys, um, you guys have basically been musicians for a while. You were, you've been musicians sort of 
before the advent of, say, not before the advent of streaming necessarily, but before streaming was the main way people consumed music. It was music. before streaming as a, as a legitimate way to listen to music. It was, it was just yeah. at the beginning of like yeah. digital consumption, really. Yeah, like, it, it was, it was, it was illegal when, downloading when we were when we yeah. first started, but there wasn't Audio anything galaxies. officially. That was the big thing. Oh, shit. Yeah. I have to apologize to you guys. I think I downloaded your first your album I did album actually on buy Wire. your album <laughs> it was after I downloaded it. So you're but, welcome. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I remember, yeah, that, that time, like, what were we talking like, 2000? 2004-ish, 2003. That was when our first record came out. And yeah. I, I remember in the, in the build-up to the release of our album, like, I loved all that stuff because it was amazing because you could get your hands on all of this music that was so difficult yeah. to find. Like, throughout my whole, my, my teenage years, my musically formative years, it was... You would spend six months trying to find... I remember spending six months trying to find The Only Fun in Town by Joseph K. It was really hard. And then Audio Galaxy came along and suddenly... You could download it. I was going to say instantly. You could download it in about fourteen hours. You could download yeah, yeah. It in the course of an evening. <laughs> yes, but yeah. then, did that go on to make to be disappointing ultimately? Um, what because of the instant because nature of music? Because you didn't, you didn't have the yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, no, no. Of course, because like, like when I finally got the only fun in town. Oh my god, the sense of reward yeah. was astonishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I had literally spent six months hunting yeah, for it, hunting. and when I got my hand, it felt really, really special. And of course. I listened to all the songs that I didn't particularly like on that record and, and made sure like I them. like them. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> yeah. After, which is what everybody should do with every artist's record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you Eat listen the to the vegetables on the record. <laughs> <laughs> Eat the damn vegetables. Yeah. You've got to like this. Yeah. But in LimeWire was great because not only did you have stuff like that, but then you also had stuff like weird nine minute audio clips of like someone like doing Homer Simpson arguing with a weirdly racist voiceover of Osama bin Laden. You know, that was the kind of stuff you could find on LimeWire. Yeah, or, wow. or I was gonna. Yeah, I, I, I was gonna say, that one. That sounds good. I was gonna right. say you, you find clips of the Japanese game show where you do a tongue twister, and if you get it wrong, a catapult whips you in the nuts. She's not good I over mean, audio. I feel like you guys use LimeWire better than we did. <laughs> <laughs> but you were you were saying that you you were you were excited to like what release your album on LimeWire. It's a leak. I mean, because it's it's, it's, it's yeah. quite a compliment if like something leaks. It's people people want to hear it. You know. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, mm. I, do you remember our old guitarist LimeWire? It was on public. There was a public. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But... I, I wonder sometimes though if like if that both expands like your listener base, but then also reduces the amount of money, like in the sense that on one hand, someone who connects to like LimeWire or Napster or WinMX yeah. in Australia or Argentina or somewhere is able to have access to a thing they wouldn't be able to get through normal distribution, but then also like they're not paying royalties. Like they're not, yeah. you know, they're not but buying. I, yeah, the it, whole it, thing shifted like that though. I mean, like, you know, people have stopped buying records, but now theoretically more people should kind of go to gigs, I guess. That's, that is the experience now of being a music fan is kind of more mm. and going to the live show. And also in, in, in that period when all of this sort of file sharing thing first started off, you, you kind of forget that it wasn't, the general population that was downloading music, it was a few people who were pretty tech savvy. It was yeah. younger people. You know, my parents wouldn't have been doing it. People in their 30s wouldn't have really been doing it. It was people who knew how to like set this stuff up on their computer and do it. And most people were still buying CDs at that point. And I remember at that time thinking like, this is this weird period in history where we've got lawlessness. It's like the Wild West. We've got a lawless period and it's going to revert to like the old model before too yeah. long. And it hasn't quite worked out like no, I mean, that. You get, you get kids nowadays, I think, who've, like, who was I talking to recently? Like someone, uh, a friend of ours who teaches kids and she was saying that they don't understand the concept that you can buy music. 
It's like, that's like, like, you know, 14, 15 year old kids. Like, what do you mean buy music? It's free. Well, when I was, when I was at, um, when I, last weekend, I was, I was hanging out with some of the, the IPPR people who are, in fact, one of the previous guests on our show, Matt Lawrence. Yeah. Uh, and they're talking a lot, they were talking a lot about almost exactly what, what you were saying, Alex, this idea that there was a wild west and anarchy of, of, of a digital commons in music that was going to revert to the to some either the old model or some other model of some kind and that the sort of the business model of you might say the platform capitalists has been one of or he would say was enclosure and then rent seeking and so what you ha- what you what you get is yes there was a decentralized unowned um, sort of method of music transmission that was admittedly imperfect, but where we were seeing increased returns on, say, like live shows and so on, but that sort of the advent of streaming services like Spotify has now sort of re-enclosed. Because I have a statistic here uh, that those Spotify's economics are sort of complicated and opaque. For each individual stream of a song, um, the average rights holder will receive 0.27 pence, so about, a, about you know, a, a third of a penny. Or much less in some cases, depending on how much they've been able to negotiate. Mm-hmm. But that holder is then split among the record label producers, artists, and songwriters. And so actually being a musician or a songwriter and getting money on Spotify is harder than, well, harder than ever. I mean, I, 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 the, other, the other statistic I have, and I'll sort of throw it back to everyone, uh, is that if we all remember all about that bass... Uh, yeah. that bass sure no travel that, that was a banger who, who can't remember it yeah a, a bouncy pop song um, it was played 178 million times in the year of its release and yet Kevin Caddish that's 178 million times too many isn't it really that's <laughs> <laughs> oh damn damn dude I didn't know you were so edgy have you been listening to oh, cool yeah. stuff like Disturbed hell yeah have down with the sickness for the spectator while we weren't looking I've been lime wiring a lot of stuff um, I've been lime wiring down with the sickness and um, old jackass movies on the Italian man who went to Malta yeah. you know stuff like that um, bit of corn Kevin Kaddish a Grammy nominated music producer who co-wrote the song that was streamed 178 million times in its first year received only $5,600 total That's but he could use that money to go to the Dignitas Clinic so it's not all bad <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, I, I, I know that I, I was aware of Spotify being in the news recently as well because uh, an employee called Hong Perez has, is suing uh, Spotify for basically old school sexist behavior. Uh, she is in charge of one of the territories, has been doing really well, but uh, the bosses were taking male-only sort of teams out to go to strip clubs and do you know, old-fashioned chauvinist kind of stuff. And when I was reading this story, I was thinking, this is the kind of behavior you would expect from a company in the 1950s. Like, it feels really dated. Like, it's kind of crazy that this kind of stuff is still going on in a company. And then I thought, yeah, it's kind of appropriate because if you look at what has happened after this what period of anarchy, companies like Spotify have reverted the music industry to the royalty rates that you would find in the, uh, in the 1950s, where and it's sheer exploitation. It's sheer exploitation of the artists and the people that work for these companies as well. And, and you know, like in the 1950s, it was just a bunch of wise guys taking advantage of musicians. Then over the years, various court cases happened and musicians eventually got some rights. All that seems to have been completely wiped because the, whole, the old model has disappeared. 
And now we have this model where it's a free-for-all and guys like this guy making 5,600 a year, whatever. The old model was based on sort of, you might say, like clear ownership and excludability, which, don't get me wrong, is bad. But this new, but it was something that sort of, you might say, like the labor movement of the time, whether it was sort of musicians or even like, like, like guys who were like employed by pizza restaurants delivering pizzas or whatever, all of these labor movements were able to effectively organize against that model and then sort of demand more rights, more pay, and a bigger section of production. Well, they were able to create a bottleneck in a sense. Yeah. Like, but the thing about it is with this distribution model is that, that there, isn't, there is not yet a means by which people can create a bottleneck yeah. uh, to stop them from being able to distribute it. So it's like if, if people who work in the music industry, if artists wanted to not perform or they wanted to strike or they wanted to not sign to a certain label, that's a different thing than it is now where, you know, regardless of how you're getting music out, like there's basically everything is almost completely free for the listener. Um, so like if it's on SoundCloud or if it's on Spotify or if it's anywhere, basically it strikes me and correct me if I'm wrong here, that like the only sort of solid way to make money um, where it's not going to be basically you know, rendered brutally efficient is by selling merchandise at shows or show tickets at, you know, at venues. If that's, I don't know if that's, if that's been your experience or not. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I presume that models like Spotify and YouTube are generating a hell of a lot of income as Someone. well. I read that the Spotify have yet to turn a profit. I don't know. Did I mean, anyone else read it's, that? It's, they, the, a, a lot of this, a lot of the platform companies do this. Is they will sort of make themselves a loss every year, so they never have to pay any tax. Okay. Um, so <laughs> no, they're still making all of their owners right, and yeah, investors yeah. shed it, loads. It, it would make sense because yeah. you know, like, what are you spending in a month? Like ten or fifteen pounds a month or whatever. Ten pounds a month for premium yeah. membership. That's the equivalent of buying like one record a month. But, like for everyone who's on it, buying a record a month. That's that's a, that's a lot of but records. The thing is, mm. but, then, but all of that, no, very little of that money is going to the artists. Um, in fact, the vast majority of it yeah. is either going to investors in Spotify, that's yeah, why it's true, yeah. yeah. or it's, yeah, it's, go, it's, it's going it's, to 1950s yeah. style business practices. It's also going back to the old guys as well, because uh, when Spotify first appeared, it seemed like a threat to the old school music industry. And the way the the old school record labels dealt with this was to buy out Spotify. And the major shareholders in Spotify are actually the old model, the old uh, Just goes to companies. show that, that solidarity among capitalists comes yeah, first right, and okay. foremost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mar- market disruption, yeah, yeah. really? Yeah, yeah. Why did they fall? United if, you scr- yeah. if you scratch market disruption a little bit, yeah. really, it just seems like capital replacing labor. So... I'm interesting. How have you seen that change over the course of your career? Considering your first, your first big album, your first album came out in what oh four, wasn't it? Or later? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, The same as most artists, you don't really make any money from selling music anymore. Like you say, yeah. It's one thing I've really noticed uh, changing massively is the artists make their revenue from um, what do you call it? Uh, Sinks, yeah, Yeah. placement. Like, Like you know, like seeing music in. Uh, using television, uh, soundtracks for films, and for advertising. Video games, big as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, video games mm-hmm. are huge. And it's become something which is completely accepted now, uh, that you have this sort of commercial marriage between music or creativity and artistic endeavor in a way that just would not have been accepted by most of these artists 20 years earlier. When, when I first started, you know, I'm, I'm 46 now, so I was first playing in bands over 25 years ago. And at that time, the idea of like selling your music, like selling out to allow your music to be used in television or a film, never mind an advert, 
was completely appalling and completely repellent. Whereas today, it's just, well, there's no other choice if you want to pay your overinflated rent. Well, so actually what you said about uh, music appearing in advertising reminded me of my favorite ever band appearing in advertising, which was, if we can cast our minds back to 2015, right? I, I can't. Right. No, I'm, I'm out of RAM. I'll set, I'll set the scene for you. No Brexit, right? No, no Trump, right? But all about that bass was in the charts, okay? <laughs> that's, that's the period we're in here. Now, uh, uh, Clean Bandit, the, words, the world's blandest band, uh, Cambridge University's finest, Clean Bandit, right? They were on an advert or a phone, which was never a commercial success, called the the fucking Microsoft Cortana. Was it was it like Nathan Barley's phone from the Hornet? It basically was. It basically one. went. Yeah. So Microsoft bought out the Nokia Lumix phones, which is like Nokia's smartphones, which no one ever bought, and they made it like Windows Phone and into. And then they had this like Cortana thing, which was supposed to be like a rival to Siri. But like Siri's shit, like who uses Siri? But Microsoft were like, no, we're going to make our own, even shittier version of Siri, which named even less a- people also will use. Named after the AI from Halo that goes crazy and is the villain of the fifth game. Classic. Um, and so what happened was, you're gamers. Lean Bandit <laughs> are on this are on this fucking advert where they're talking to Microsoft's shitty Siri and laughing at its jokes. And there's like this moment where uh, they say something like, uh, "Yeah, we're gonna. Can you?" Can you play music for our fans? And, she, and it's like, of course I can. And then they're like something like, uh, can you dance? And then it goes, when I'm on vibrate mode, that's me dancing really fast. Oh, and then they all go like, ha, 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 ha. And then one of them goes, you make me laugh, Cortana. And then if you like, if you pause it just there, you can just see the moment as they all realize that their credibility is inc- entirely gone. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, they've received some money. Really? They're basically... I've never seen that. I've never heard. I don't think <laughs> oh, I've We've got to YouTube that later. It's I mean, so I, good. I will. Are you blaming Clean Bandit for the failure of the phone? I think so. <laughs> I think I'm a phone for the failure of Clean Bandit. I don't know. Yeah, well, just, anybody who's excited about this phone, I don't trust thereby. I will not buy this phone. Clean Zoom Bandit user. can't do anything without Jess Glynn. They're so the Zoom when they user. The phone on their They're own. the Zoom user. <laughs> do you know but what it, that story reminds me of? It reminds me of an experience that we had around about the time of our second album. Mm-hmm. Um, our, so we were still on Domino, which is a rec, uh, an independent label in the UK, but in America... We kind of did a deal through Domino that was going through Epic, which are part of Sony, a big major label. And they, while we were recording the second album, were putting lots and lots of pressure on us to do this team up with Best Buy. And Best Buy is, you know, for non-American listeners, it's like, I don't know, it's like the equivalent of Uh, curries, 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 but also combined with I don't know, WH Smiths and like, like yeah, it's, it's basically amazing. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> basically, basically, basically like, like, you get a galaxy for a pound. But we, we fell out with the label so badly because they wanted us to be part of this advertising campaign where a, an employee from Best Buy would put out their hand, well, they, would, they would say, hey, if you come to Best Buy, you can get any music you want. You could even get, and they would put out their hand, and we would be standing as miniature versions of ourselves on their hand, so you could even get Franz Ferdinand. And, the executives from uh, Sony Epic couldn't understand why we might not want to be part of such a campaign. Because we're not small enough. We can't How fit big is this hand? <laughs> yes, yes. I know everyone in America is big. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fuck me, but that, that is does, so that, coveted. That does seem to be like indicative of a, pure, a previous age with regard to like how doing adverts was perceived for musicians. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Maybe, now, maybe I was old fashioned then. Yeah. I don't know. Like, like, but, but, but but now, while while like 
the the scripting of the ad notwithstanding being in an ad wouldn't be taken necessarily taken the same like i don't know i think it might be perceived as crass but it wouldn't be like completely credibility killing the way that it was 20 years ago well, so definitely not. not in fact yeah, i yeah. i there's a there is an, an there's, i i because I, I think about sort of capitalism and, and sort of creativity and the, the fact of creative industries a lot, uh, I've pulled in a couple of sort of essays that I like. Uh, one of these uh, is, is an essay called uh, Capitalism, Creativity, and the Crisis in the Music Industry. It's from 2012, but it sort of said something I think is really quite telling about sort of successive crises that have plagued the creative arts, um, which is that essentially, you know, it's that and an, an Apple or a Spotify doesn't care who you're listening to. They merely care sort of that you're streaming, that you're paying. They've already really invested in the infrastructure, and there's very little need for them to pay musicians much at all with so much back catalog to exploit and so much music basically available for free. They don't even need to promote popular acts because people sort of self-organize. People can just organize over those infrastructures. They really don't need to do anything but sit on rights and charge rent. Um, but then... It was, uh, it was sort of believed that, well, that's fine. We're not making money on streaming because we're making money on touring. But then as of 2011, no major music festival in the UK was making more in excess of its corporate sponsorship than what it received. And so it essentially, we got to a point where music was largely had become an adjunct of the advertising industry, right? And so all of these, all of these stories sort of like, of sort of come, of clashing in and out and Selling in and out became irrelevant because the business model fundamentally changed. Because basically, know, whether you're listening to the Velvet Underground or Crazy Frog, you're still making money for Spotify. It really doesn't matter what you're listening to. Well, I've listened to a lot of Franz Ferdinand's new album by Magnus Cider, and I have to say, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't reflect that theme at all. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Milo, when did you get that giant I, fur coat? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was from a legal dog business. That's, that's quite interesting about how you're saying there about um, the fact that there's such a huge back catalogue available constantly. And now, you know, you have your phone in your pocket and you've pretty much got access to the history of 20th century music. Um, just in your pocket. Mm. Do you think that dampens people's appetite for new music? It being complete because you don't you don't have to go and hunt it anymore. Like you know, twenty years ago, when you what are you saying? Well, why, why do you need to listen to Clean Bandit when you can hear the Doors? Yeah. Well, but I mean, that is a question that has played Clean Bandit's career. To be <laughs> you know, why you, do you have to listen to Clean Bandit when you can go outside? Cheese <laughs> <laughs> on toast. Yeah. You know? The thing is, it's it's you. I mean, we can even remember though. There is that you can al- almost go too far the other way and fall into the nostalgia trap. Yeah. Because if you remember, what was the dumbest thing anyone's ever sent into space? Answer, Elon Musk's Tesla, oh, Thread yeah. Tesla, oh, yeah. with David Bowie playing on it, which is exactly what like a lame dad would do. I forgot he'd done that. That, was that, that seems like years ago. Was that like last <laughs> yeah, year? Yeah, yeah. It was last year or two years ago. Or right. yeah. Yeah. I swear it was like in May, but like it feels as though a century has May. passed yeah. since then. Yeah. 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 So long! Yeah, it's the, it's, it was the 20th of April, wasn't it? The, Hitler's birthday. We've only got his word for it. That he actually come on. Did it was it, June right? 9th Was it six nine? Oh, oh, but no. But Hitler was born on the twentieth of April. I thought you were quibbling about Hitler's birthday. No, I, never, I never quibbled. Oh, you, yeah, yeah. He's not a real Hitler head like me. <laughs> but, but it's but it's that you can you it's 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 easy to kind of say that oh, it's oh, well, it's all that the access sort of. Um, stymies innovation because people go nostalgic or it's uh-huh. easy to say the access fosters innovation because we're not restricting because yeah we're not we're not restricting influences anymore i mean i think 
I, I often think I, I think really you kind of almost can't guess one way or the other. Mm. But what I, I really think is true is that like a lot of like the fact that we have access to like the entire music catalog of the 20th century at more or less any point in our pockets is a great thing. I it's agree, a, yeah, yeah. It's a shame that it couldn't be the same creative commons that it started out as. I think, or 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 that yeah. the mechanism by which it's available has to constantly seek the bottom line to the mm. point that it basically makes the circumstances that most of those works were created in impossible for yeah. a modern creative artist. I mean, I remember this is maybe years ago, but I remember somebody saying like, "Oh yeah, for a regular indie band to be successful, they need about a hundred thousand dollars in investment." It's like, well, that kind of takes away from the concept of being an indie band if you need that much money. And it's like, mm. whereas you hear stories about people, you know, in the seventies or in the early eighties being able to you know, go from playing in pubs to being signed with basically a very, very small amount of money because that space existed. Where, where, were, you hearing these, where were you hearing these figures from? Like, like, like the, the 100,000 pounds or dollars, like who's, who's putting that money forward? I, I, think, I think that was, it may have just been like kind of an estimate that journalists put out or something where people were talking about like the amount of money, like doing math on a napkin about like what? how much it would cost for gear and touring and that kind of recording an album. I, I, but, I, that, sounds, that sounds about right. I mean, yeah, you got to record an album, um, then, you, you know, you're promoting it, you, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's, I mean, it doesn't sound... Mm. But that, that's not just coming from the band, no, no, though, the is band, it? The like, label like, are doing it. Yeah, 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 well, yeah. A label yeah. investing in a band. Yeah, um, it's that you need to be a proven, you need to be a provable investment, which means they need to do this research on you more and more because capital, because the returns on capital are are dropping. So every yeah. expenditure of capital is more and more precious. So it's, so it's less and less appetite for risk and more and more appetite for a sure thing. We've well, got to make sure that it all adds up. Because, I mean, you, you know, you've got all your money, you know, that, as Bob said, that you spend on, you know, the, the producing the album and then the promoting and stuff. And you get to a point where you've got, you know, about you know, $80,000 spent on an album, right? And then you've got to leave, you know, another fifteen to $20,000 left aside for delicious, refreshing Magnus Cider. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the only thing that helps us make a great tune. No, I want to get into... Um, I want reading the liner notes, right? I'm on board. I want to get into the economics of being... Uh, of, of sort of a banding. Um, but first, um, I wanted to say the, the, the newest way in which, you might say, brands uh, have sort of turned the music industry into an adjunct of marketing um, is via sort of Spotify playlists. Now, these are, these are the things where it would be like chilled workout or uh, night. My favorite kind of workout. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm in bed, yeah, enjoying a refreshing workout, yeah. pint of Magnus Cider. <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 or Magnus Afternoon. Exactly. Or, um, you know, this kind of, you know, the, the playlist yeah, we're yeah. talking about, yeah. you know, hip hop beats to study down to. Um, mm. To the point where now multinational companies can pay for Spotify pages and then put up their own playlists that show what it's like to be Unilever yeah. or whatever. Mm. Um, and I actually have found the Spotify guidelines wow. for brands who want to make a brand playlist. And some of them are banal and some of them are horrifying, hey, which makes second. them perfect for our era. I was just thinking about what it would be like to be Unilever. And the answer is very confusing because that's a company that makes like bleach and my ice mic. cream. Nightmarish combination of things. Same factory, right? Yeah. I mean, and we, yeah, we we hired those three brothers, Larry, Curly, and Moe, to run the Lord logistics of our bleach factory and our ice cream factory. They won't fuck up any of the deliveries, of course. On the subject of factories, when I back, this is just a Russia huh? story. <laughs> what? When I was living in when I was living in Russia, so a mate of mine who's a comedian, he's from Matishi, and a guy who, which is like a city, it's like the the Watford of Moscow. 
Um, and, uh, and basically there's a beer factory in Matishi and a guy he knows who worked at the factory told him that the guys who worked at the factory got in trouble for two things, which was, um, pissing in the massive vat that they make the beer in. That's a good thing to get someone in trouble for. And also, and also drinking loads of the beer that they were making, but they pissed in the beer first. (laughs) 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 So there were all these Russian dudes who just like were so gung-ho that they were like, yeah, fuck this, we'll piss in the beer. But then, but we also do want to drink the merchandise. So fuck it. We'll drink the beer that we've pissed in. That's entrepreneur behavior right there. Is there a playlist that can say that? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, that doesn't happen. The Magnus Cider Factory. (laughs) (laughs) So here are the five five tips. Um, The first one is pretty banal. The more tracks you have in your playlist, the better. Put at least 20 on so people get a sense of who you are. Again, we're using a personal pronoun for a brand. They're all tubular bells. (laughs) (laughs) Don't have a single artist appear in your playlist more than once. Um... If you have a reason to believe a specific artist may have or be a problem for your brand, it's probably smart to stay away from them. <laughs> so, GG Allen, uh, sorry. Well, that reminds me of the time when, I think it was the Tory party conference in like 2010 when David Cameron came on stage to some song by Keane and then Keane got wind of it and did this press release saying that David Cameron was a cunt. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that took a press release? Yeah, so, well, you know. So I, I really I really like the idea of a brand just completely issuing that and just being like, no, like, we might be Gillette shaving cream, but, like, we want to put Body Count's Cop Killer on our playlist. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to happen. <laughs> so, we'll put it's Beardy Man on our playlist because we fear nothing. <laughs> I just... I was- Love the if you want to be if you're a brand that wants to be the most rational ever you put down with the sickness on there everyone just knows how smart you are so the other the other, now here's where it gets a little bit weird I mean it was it was weird already here's where it gets weirder keep your playlist editorial in nature don't try to make it a commercial for your product just do like other Spotify users do show the world what kind of music your brand likes to listen to while partying driving or enjoying a cup of coffee wow. How many, oh, how many cups of coffee time. does Unilever drink a day? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of someone having a playlist specifically for when they're drinking coffee. <laughs> and then like, they're just like, they're having, they're having a sip and then just disturbs down with the sickness comes and they spit it out. They're like, no, this isn't my Arabica playlist. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's, it's just, it's the whole like thing where it's like, it's like all, all of the shit posting brands like Wendy's or whatever. It's like, yeah, they're all your friends now. And it's like, you can't tell the difference between your human friends and your brand friends. Yeah, they all have personalities. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, I I thought this was just a place where I bought like a razor and some deodorant and maybe filled up on petrol or whatever it is they do. When I went to business school accidentally, so uh, a bit bit of background for you guys. uh, I went to business school kind of as a joke. um, Where like, so basically like the only way I could stay at university for another year without having to do a master's, which would have cost me a lot of money and they wouldn't have let me do it was um, basically to do do a master's. And, sorry, no, to do this business school thing. And uh, so I went, I went to business school. And one of the things, one of the many useless things they taught me was about this notion called brand personality, which is the idea of literally creating a personality for your brand so that people think it's their friend. Like, so this is an sinister. actual thing. Really yeah. And it doesn't even work. It's just dumb. <laughs> like, it's so funny well, here's, how... Here's the evidence, right? Can like, give, us, give us the tips on what they were, what, what you, how you're so supposed to do So it would be it? basically just like making it seem... It's effective like putting a leather jacket on a brand. Like, that's basically <laughs> what they're doing. Because the rule in business school was like, 
everything they think is either like completely insane or so mind-numbingly obvious that a 10-year-old could tell it to you. Like, so it'd be like either like... Nerves, man. Guys, what we're going to do is we're just going to completely reverse the market by building cucumbers out of sand. Or it's like, <laughs> do you know that if you raise the price of a product, some people will perceive it as higher quality? It's like, <laughs> like you, how did you just say that sentence? <laughs> <laughs> It's like the last time a brand did this, like that I, I sort of remember they did it successfully, was the, the Rick and Morty sauce. The, 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 oh, with fuck. the McDonald's, yeah. the Szechuan sauce. McDonald, yeah. McDonald's became associated with the Rick and Morty cartoon, and then a bunch of nerds sort of tore each other to pieces, Battle Royale style, to get the sauce that the genius scientist likes. Wow. Like, it's. it's I, I'm, I'm interested though, like, so say if your music appeared on a brand's playlist, like, I mean. I, what what sort of reaction does that generate though? Because like obviously once it's on Spotify, it seems as though they have yeah. absolute license Absolutely. to do that if they wanted to. Yeah, yeah I guess you, there's you, nothing we can do to stop that. Really, yeah. it's, it's completely out of our. How often does this happen? Are, are there a lot of brands uh, playlists? I, 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 I don't. I'm, I'm, on, I'm unaware never, of this. Never, yeah. We should look into this. Yeah. We yeah. should see. It. We should. We should see if you. If, like, what you're, brands would you want to hear their playlists? I, I, I forgot what my favorite brands are now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> just, yeah. They lack personality. You on? They need That's more personality, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I, the only brand I want to see our podcast on is, of course, uh, Supreme. Well, I want to see myself that, on the that, Supreme that playlist. Remy, the uh, socialist that, cookware company. Of course, that and Remy, <laughs> the accidentally socialist cookware company, which we'll advertise towards the end of the show. Doc Toilet Cleaner has a playlist that's just every Franz Ferdinand album. You're like, why? <laughs> <laughs> they did, they, they, finished. they yeah. didn't follow the advice to keep it to about 20 songs that yeah, repeating yeah. an artist at all. <laughs> I, I love the idea that a brand would like somehow like choose songs that related to their brand, like, like just purely songs about cleaning. Whatever. It reminds me of Sandy Shaw, when she went on Desert Island Discs, she did the most amazing troll of the program ever. I, I mean, I'm presuming, like from, from my cynical perspective, I presume it was a troll. It might just have been naivety. I don't know. But she went on and every song that she chose related to either being on a beach, on a desert island, or surfing, or something to do with really, <laughs> her. And the whole thing was like, wow. You're just, yeah, yeah. Kind of amazing. Yeah, yeah. Sandy Shaw appearing on a lot of puppet companies' playlists. <laughs> right, yes. That's a really niche Sandy Shaw joke. Yeah, 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 yeah. Be, I, I that, got it. Yeah, you know, honestly, that, any Sandy yeah, Shaw yeah. joke is a niche Sandy Shaw joke, but <laughs> that one especially. That, that, would, that would make about as much sense as like a sort of early 20th century Serbian radical group having their Spotify <laughs> playlist. <laughs> the Sarajevo right, yeah. City Council has <laughs> nothing but France for yeah, yeah, yeah. Raise your black hands now. <laughs> so the, fi the fifth piece of advice is, again, slightly also quite sinister. Take advantage of the relationships you already have. If you've just hired an artist to be your new spokesperson, a playlist might be a great opportunity to show the world how much your brand loves the artist. The use of the word love there really fucking squicks me out. Wow. Yeah, yeah. How, how much can you love a brand? How much can yeah. a marketing department love an artist? Yeah. I mean, a marketing department is there to perform a function and it's there to perform a clerical function in a capitalist economy, which is to create demand for oven cleaner or whatever. Like on the basis of like how much they love a certain kind of, you know, like SoundCloud rap. 
and you know how much the they can be aspirational lifestyle. I do related. like the idea of like the most far out SoundCloud rappers eventually becoming like the brand spokesman for something like Toilet Duck. It's, just like, it's, like, it's like is your Toilet Duck a mess? Like Takashi Six Nine? Well, clean it up. Yeah, with yeah, yeah. Yo, your your oven been talking sweet on Chief Keith on Instagram. <laughs> what this what this is effectively is like Joel Golby articles becoming real life. It's like yeah, but like if Tesla was a person, what music would it listen to though? And then like going through like this is like actually them doing it to themselves. No, if if Tesla was if Tesla was a person, it would be Homer Simpson in the car trying to explain Grand Funk Railroad to like Bart's friends. <laughs> <laughs> you all are fucking Philistines. No, I mean, you don't know anything about Sandy Shores. We stopped, we stopped, we stopped watching fucking. The Simpsons in like two thousand. Like sane. This people. was Homer Palooza. This wasn't. Or this was a, a prime years episode. <laughs> Sorry, Riley. We're not devotees like you. So one of the, but one of the the, the take kind of we've we've talked a lot about sort of the of the of one of some of the only ways to sort of succeed in music is either to become like a hyperstar or to sort of you know align with brands or whatever. Um, and one of the art, one of the reactions that keeps coming up with this is, oh well, you shouldn't want money. You should feel lucky that you're making a living doing art. And again, another another essay that I, I like quite a bit was from um, recently problematic magazine Jacobin, um, a, a 2015 article that I've read numerous times by Miranda Campbell, a Canadian culture professor, uh, um, and the article is called Culture Isn't Free. She says uh, that celebrated British author, for example, Rupert Thompson, recently, sp- recently spoke about the crushing effect of the Great Recession on the ability of writers to make a living from their craft. At 60, he's no longer able to afford an office space uh, to write in and instead decided to turn to a tiny corner of his attic an area so small he cannot stand up into a workspace. I have no private income, no, no rich spouse, no inheritance, no pension. There is no safety net at all, he said. Yet still, online commenters debated the merit of giving Thompson any sympathy. Some suggested that Thompson should be grateful that he's doing something that he loves, that he owns a home, that he's able to convert his attic into a tiny workspace. Others suggested that expecting to write all day and survive financially was foolhardy to begin with, which is the crushing effect of neoliberalism on on the creation of art, where there is this idea that because art is creatively satisfying, we must almost devote ourselves to the cult of suffering for work. Yeah, and it also brings us back to the idea that, that art is measured by the bottom line. Like, like you know, like, like successful artists aren't necessarily artists who create a lot of money. It's a, a successful artist, from my perspective, is somebody who makes good art. And that isn't necessarily an artist who generates a lot of money, isn't necessarily an artist who generates enough money to survive in the contemporary climate. And also, if we look at the States, I, I, I see a big disparity between United Kingdom and Europe and the, and the US because most artists aren't superstars. They aren't hyper, you know, hyperstars or whatever. And something I see from a lot of our contemporaries over there is they can't afford healthcare. I mean, I can't. And that is shocking. That's that's basic survival. The, the sheer number of bands will like will reunite to do a benefit concert because like a friend's kid is sick and they have no health care. Right. I mean, they, I remember the Dismemberment Plan was a band I really followed in the U.S. and they broke up for about five or six years, but they got back together for that sole purpose. And you keep hearing these things over and over again. Whereas I remember you ironically Dismemberment something they couldn't afford to happen to. <laughs> whereas I remember in an interview you did with uh, Drowned in Sound, Alex, you mentioned that like the NHS and DSS were like hugely important to you as an artist because it created the ability to have a certain degree of security as opposed to if you were like just living out in the world with nothing, 
you know, if you get sick or you you, you run out of resources, you can't keep creating art. I, I mean, even uh, not as in terms of an artist as well. Like if it wasn't for the NHS, I probably would have died. Like, like from things that happened to me earlier, I had orbital cellulitis when I was 15. Uh, my, my parents probably couldn't have afforded like expensive healthcare. So I would have died from that. Asthma, had several asthma attacks. NHS took care of me. It, and what's weird is like, like, I never questioned it at the time at all. Mm. It was just what was there. And it's what you expected because that's how it should be. That's how it should be. You should just expect it to be there because it is the principle of a civilized society that we look after people and we care for people. And it's, well, it's not just a privilege of those who can afford it. Mm. No, absolutely. And I think it's it's an interesting point about like where we've got, this is one of the few things I actually get annoyed about because um, being somebody who works in the creative arts myself, um, how like a lot of people who have like what we might quote unquote call an actual job get very churlish about people in like performing arts and stuff because they review it as like not a proper job purely on the basis that like it seems like something that isn't soul crushing. And to them, that is what work has become because that's wow. the economy we live in where if you do something that doesn't make you miserable, it's not a job. And like the actual like, because it's not that they actually do anything. Like they mostly just sit in an office doing actually less than I do all day because they just have to be in a place. And they probably do like two hours of actual work all day, but they are just located like between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. in a place in a fancy yeah. outfit, as Riley once said. And like, that, and that, but like they have to get up early in the morning. They don't, see, they don't do anything they like. And it's like that misery quotient for which they get paid. But then the weird thing is I, like, so I kind of understand the churlishness from their side. Cause fine. I might be, I might like translate my bitterness about my horrible job in that way. Also, if I did one, cause I can, I know how miserable those jobs are, but the weird thing for me is when like, I mean, I'm a comedian. So when I look at other comedians who like therefore become ashamed about ever making any money from anything that they do. And so like, if you go to almost any pro comedy night in London, that's not like a professional comedy club or whatever, that's being run kind of by people like me. There's often like a collection of money at the end, but it's always for charity. It's never like, let's just pay the comedians because this is their job. It's always like, oh no, obviously you wouldn't pay comedians because they're just like idiot clowns. This money has to go to like some worthy cause. I'm like, charity is fine, but like, what's wrong with just paying comedians? <laughs> Why are we so bad? It's what? definitely true for art, for, for musicians mm. as well. Like, like when musicians are sort of like at a lower level when they're first starting out and playing gigs, Always asked to do charity gigs, never, and very rarely gigs that actually pay them, mm. or even worse. And like, what's it first started about twenty years ago, so like maybe slightly less. But as these uh, pay-to-play gigs, mm. you know, where a promoter um, gets the bands to put forward a sum of money so that they sell a certain amount of tickets in order for the thing to happen, rather than the promoter having faith, which is what you will see in other European com- countries where you have promoters who just have faith in the artistic merit of the acts that they're promoting, which is what you should be doing as a promoter anyway. If you want to put this band on, you should see that there is some artistic worth. Otherwise, you just shouldn't be putting them on in the first place. That's what a lot of comedy is like in the US now. It's exactly the same phenomenon, yeah. It's that these things aren't... It's like, in general, I think it's that these things aren't valued because I think there is... Even though they are valuable... They are not, the way our economy is organized does not sufficiently value them, even though they may sort of make a lot of people's lives better. And in fact, they may make, they, it, they may make quite a few more people's lives better now that more people have access to them more readily. And yet, it's almost this paradox where the more people have gotten more access to more of it, the less and less and less it's valued, even though it is, again, just an increasing part of like what keeps all these terrible office people alive. You know, and, well, I mean, it's why we make podcasts. 
for people who have long commutes who want to listen to something that like <laughs> doesn't true. make them want to die. But at the same time, it's like, but that's why we make an anti-capitalist podcast. <laughs> you don't like hate Mondays. You just hate capitalism. Yeah, I just realized actually that most people listening to me ranting about that, the only difference between them and the people I'm ranting about is they just, they've realized that their job is miserable. <laughs> <laughs> but I think one of the things is like this, this environment where, where we sort of imagine that it's a privilege to make art. It's not just a kind of work you can do. Um, I think it's, it's exacerbated in a country where you have a residualized social safety net, right? Like before sort of Blairism, um, a band could be on the dole for a bit while they worked up a catalog. That definitely happened for me. Like, like I, I wouldn't be, you know, I, in the position I am now if I hadn't been for the dole in my 19, in, in, in my 20s, in my 20s, I was on the dole for, for long periods. And it's funny when people talk about that and the, there's often this, presumption that it that it's somehow like a well it is a privilege but like you were somehow spoiled because you were on the door for that i wasn't like like living in luxury i was subsisting at that time and it's not something that people necessarily want to do it's, it's not like the most glorious lifestyle you can have no no you 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 can just about survive and get yeah. by and that's fine but it gives you the freedom with which to explore your ideas and your creativity and work it out and i still have this theory that it generally pays for itself like millions of times over with the artists who do go through that and then contribute from the taxes that they make in the long run. Well, they've effectively yeah. invested in you, haven't they? It's like the yeah. government yes, exactly. yeah, allowed yeah, you yeah, to subsist yeah. for long enough. I mean, to I, I remember there's just, just a kind of a curiosity of music that uh, the Canadian band, the Unicorns, recorded an album that I really enjoyed with a Canadian government grant. <laughs> Was it a, worth a billion dollars? Yes, no, exactly. <laughs> it's worth a billion dollars. Yeah. No, uh, they, they put out an album, I want to say no three or a four, where they had gotten like a 10,000 Canadian dollar grant to record an album. And they were like, well, we got an artist grant. We're going to use this to go to the studio and record. And it's like, to an American, you're just like, how does such a fucking thing exist? Right, yeah, because yeah. the idea of the government giving a band money to record an album just like is so incomprehensible in the world that we live in. So it's just like to think, wow, art doesn't have to be hard. You don't have to be miserable to create this. Like was what you just described. Like even if it's not living in the life of luxury, it at least puts you in a position to accomplish the thing that you're setting out to accomplish. Yeah, back I, in Canada, we funded our first album by uh, breeding French bulldogs. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I love stuff. that. I, I I I love that idea, and I feel it's something that is disappearing from the United Kingdom as well. Like we, we've seen it with the Conservative government over the last few years, uh, arts funding has been cut. There's a band that we know from Holland called Rats on Rafts. We're we're doing uh, some shows in in Japan later this year, and they're coming to come over to join us, and they're receiving funding from the Dutch government to go over to Japan to play some shows. And I love that idea. I love that idea that the that Holland is so proud of their cultural output that they want to put it out into the world and say, look, listen to this thing that we made. This is our identity. This is part of who we are. Look, rest of the world, this is a, this is a great thing. And it, it's sad to see it disappearing. <laughs> the Dutch country, government yeah. just panicked that like, fuck, the only Dutch thing people in Japan have heard of is Armin van Buren. We have to do something <laughs> about this. It's at least the thing. It's like by, by the sheer ledger logic of capitalism, by the sort of the rote sort of calculate the bean counting the sort of exactitude it can only ever reduce and refine it can only ever find the one thing the french bulldog plan that's the most profitable thing to do 
it can never value something intrinsically. It can only value it instrumentally. Dutch music is actually worth more in Japan, so it's really it's a clever scheme. There's a vacant garage. They've got a garage. Yeah. Yeah. They've, got a, they've got a guitar, a yeah, shitload yeah. of clogs, and yeah. a ton of edam. Yeah. <laughs> That's fucking yeah. rock. Yeah. Dutch bands born by That's, C-section. Yeah. This, this is the this is the thing though, and this is again why I I always sort of like to end and and sort of end with a little bit of hope. Like, like, like what John McDonald was saying was he's going to he, they want to reimagine the British welfare state. So it's no longer a safety net that catches you if you fuck up. It's a foundation you can kind of build the kind of life you have reason to value on. And that's kind of where they're that, that's, that's where they're at. And that's where I'd like to see us get back to. Yeah. Universal based income. Fuck yeah! That's our Patreon, baby. Yeah. That's how it works. Yeah. So sign up for basic that. income for irony podcasters. An income on which even the neediest among us can afford a refreshing pint of Magnus cider, <laughs> <laughs> in which even the neediest among us can invest in a cockamamie uh, scheme to clandestinely have a dog nursery in your parents' garage. <laughs> Crossbreeding dogs with Dutch rock bands. That's my um, new. I think uh, I think that that that's, that brings it nicely round full circle. Um, just to remind everyone, though, that uh, we've chosen instead to have uh, Elon Musk be rich enough to uh, make weed jokes that cost him more than anyone will ever see in their lifetime. Uh, instead of having a you know a thriving art scene, for every one have. Elon Musk weed joke, you could found a thousand bands albums. But uh, those weed jokes are just so good and yeah. so dad like. The weed you know? jokes definitely like, the, the weed jokes are just the the perfect sort of horny dad situation. Mm. Anyway, uh, okay, guys, um, if our listeners want to find you somewhere on the on the internet, is there somewhere they can do that? Um, yes, <laughs> you can go- Google Franz Ferdinand. <laughs> <laughs> Be careful to avoid the Archduke. Yeah. <laughs> Franz Ferdinand banned. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we're on Twitter as well. Yeah, we also have Twitter accounts. Yeah. And Instagram. Okay. And Instagrams. What, what what's, your, what's your Twitter handle? Oh, I Bob think it's Hardy, Bob Hardy, but I think there's a zero instead of an O, and maybe there's a space, I don't know. Yeah. Look for the blue tick. Very hacker yeah. of you. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and Alex, where can we find you? Uh, yeah, I, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, uh, Al Capranos, and uh, the band has just a Franz Ferdinand account. I think there's an underscore between Franz and Ferdinand. Yeah, it's going to be obvious which one. Yeah, is, yeah. It? Well, one's going to one's <laughs> so. going to be a dead duke. One's going to be you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One's just going to be. He doesn't a, tweet as much yeah. as he yeah. did. Like loads of, loads years of ago, selfies yeah. of a guy in an open top Model T Ford <laughs> looking at a grenade. Surprisingly, <laughs> <laughs> one's just going to be a guy whose parents are Habsburg enthusiast. Yeah. You know, there's going to be a lot of them. Yeah. You can also find us. Uh, you can find us on Patreon. Uh, we have a Patreon uh, that you can subscribe to. Uh, we have a second bonus episode a week for those of you who would like to listen to it. Mm. Um, but, in an oh, office in Whitechapel in which we edit those second bonuses <laughs> apparently thanks to the office yeah. it, it pays um, better than writing officially uh, we also uh, we also have as ever our strategic long term alliance uh, with Remy uh, so you know what if you're uh, if you're if you're boiling a if you're boiling a stew out of um, out, out of the rich then you know it's not socialism if it's not Remy and finally, you can commodify, well, second to finally, you can commodify your descent with a t-shirt from Lil Comrade. You can get any line from the show you want. You've got some suggestions, or you can do as some listeners have done and just gotten our tweets put on them, or just some shit we said in the pub once. I don't know why they do that. 
But they do, and we appreciate <laughs> they it. They do, and we appreciate it. I will retweet anyone who gets a T-shirt with a refreshing pint of Magnus cider <laughs> on the front. <laughs> you heard it. You heard it here first, folks. Do it. It's and your finally, job now. Yeah. And finally, uh, thank you to uh, the provider of our theme song, Ginseng. You can find him on the Accursed Spotify. Uh, he is very good. I do recommend you listen to his chill wave tracks. Bob and Alex, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Thanks guys. You. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.